All right. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure, sure? I'm, I mean, I'm not, but you okay. start this I one. am going to start. it's even. It's even, Steven. It's even, Steven, so Christina starts. Mm-hmm. What does it make sense? You don't even make sense. I don't. That's why I'm odds. Stupid. (laughs) All right. Hey, guys. It's episode 28 of I'm Sorry What the Podcast. I'm Christina. I'm Amanda. And we just got done recording episode 27, so... I like to see that your enthusiasm is still at the same level. excited for life today, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super pumped for life. Oh, <laughs> God, I hate myself when I talk like that. It's okay, so do I. Um, <laughs> you know what I discovered? This d- <laughs> There's a lot of D's at the end of that word. Discovered today, Junior. I discovered this week with all the storms, because it would be like hot as balls and then the weather would break and we'd have a thunderstorm and then it would be hot as balls again. Uh, that I can't say the word lightning. Light- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? I can't fucking say it. Lightning? I was, like, I was in my... I kept thinking light. No, I could say lightning, but like if lightning? you Lightning? If, like, what when it when it's doing it repeatedly, like the verb, and I'm like, it's lightning. <laughs> I can't fucking say it. And I'm like trying to say it, and my dad's looking at me, and I was like, lightning, lightning, lightning. He's like, lightning. He's like, what are you trying to say? And I'm like, it's lightning out. And he's like, that's not no. And I'm like, how did I go thirty years of my entire fucking life and not know that I couldn't pronounce lightning? I'm pretty sure it's just lightning. You don't have to do the double ing. At I know, the end. but I it feels like you do. So I'm like, it's lightning-ing-ing. lightning-ing. It's lightning-ing-ing. lightning-ing. lightning-ing. It's lightning-ing. I can't fucking say it. No matter. Everybody's like, yeah, it's fucking lightning. Okay, it's fine. It's lightning. I can't say it without the double. It literally will not come out. Lightning. Lightning. <laughs> it just keeps going. Fucking <laughs> okay, 30 years, and I'm just like, cool. <laughs> Thunder and lightning. <laughs> Thunder and lightning. You don't have to. Thundering and lightning. I have to stop and go. Thunder and lightning. Light, light, <laughs> light, and ing, lightning, <laughs> lightning. <laughs> I'm glad you're airing your dirty laundry. She really trusts you guys. <laughs> I can't fucking say it. <laughs> oh, she's crying. <laughs> It's just so ridiculous. Like it's not a hard word. Lightning. Lightning. It's lightning. <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake! All right. So that was mine. <laughs> well, for the record, I can say lightning. <laughs> lightning. You say it so smoothly and easily, and it does not. <laughs> 
hard. <laughs> oh, God, okay. How's the heat been for your glasses, too, by oh, the way? Oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> you go outside and it's just like... <laughs> Slapped in the face with a fog shield every time. I'm like, cool. Can't fucking see now. Thanks, guys. It's about how my windshield's been all week, too. It's like, oh, I have fog. Oh. Cool. And then it won't go away until you turn your fucking heat on to defrost it, and it's 90 degrees outside. Right? <laughs> oh, for Christ's sakes. That was... You're dumb. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Lightning! There you go, see? But I have to, like, concentrate on it, because if I just want to say thunder and lightning... (laughs) (laughs) That's like when I was younger, and for the longest time I had no idea I was saying it wrong, but instead of saying Northfield Construction, I always used to say North Confield Struction. (laughs) (laughs) And then I hit my teen years, and I was like... You know, North can feel destruction. Someone goes, what? <laughs> there's a lady at my, there's a girl at my work who sits next to me and she orders, she always, she, one day a week she loves, she loves Subway. And she loves herself one sandwich from Subway a week. Or to eat out once mm-hmm. a week. And she usually goes to Subway and she gets the, um, Monterey, Mon- Monterey cheddar bread. Yeah. And she orders, and she's like sitting next to me and she's like, she, and I pointed it out to her after like the fourth time. I was like, do you say that wrong on purpose? And she's like, what? She orders her bread, Monterey cheddar. <laughs> I was like, it's not. It's just Monterey. <laughs> it's not Monterey. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, sound it out, dude. And I was like, it's Monterey cheddar. It's, it's, it's a type of cheese. It's Monterey cheddar. I'm like, you live in Wisconsin. How do you not fucking know about Monterey, Monterey cheddar? And she's like, it's not Monterey. I'm like, no. <laughs> do you read the words? <laughs> Oh, God. Lightning. Just don't. Just stop. I'm just going to stop. I think it's I'm, nice outside right now. It's fine. I don't have to worry about it until the next thunderstorm. <laughs> Do I have to tell someone that it's lightning? <laughs> <laughs> and thundering. <laughs> just, just felt safe here, but apparently I wasn't. <laughs> funny that you felt safe here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> like, I'm not going to give you shit. I know. <laughs> I thought you'd get a, uh, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. I, I did. I did. It was good. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> stupid tongue. <laughs> stupid. There's not three ings in that word. Lightning. I don't know why I have to say like ding <laughs> Oh, for oh, Christ's sake. God. So, good luck on your story and saying all the words. I, thank you. That was very nice of you. Yeah. I appreciate it, even though that was sarcastic. I okay. know. It was a true good luck, because there's a lot of weird words in it, and you just gave me a whole, like, I can't say this word. <laughs> true. Simple <laughs> story. Uh, I'm continuing on with my uh, travels, and we are now in the Netherlands. Netherlands. So, gotta say, Dutch language. There's a lot of vowels. There's a lot of sounds that aren't actually in the words. There's a lot of vowels, not a lot of consonants, so it makes it really hard to determine how to pronounce the fucking word. <laughs> For example, last night, the 
when I was Google Translate, so this could be totally wrong, too. Oh, yeah, this one. It's spelled N-I-E-U-W-O-V-E-E-E-N. And it's pronounced Neovane. So the four E's is an A sound. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise! Surprise! (laughs) Oh, I love you guys. All right. I'm going to tell you about William Van Eyck. He is a convicted Dutch serial killer known as the Beast of Harksteed. And he was convicted twice for a total of five murders. Dun, dun, dun. So he was born in 1941 in the small village of Courtier? Courtier? Courtier, yeah. In South Holland, then under the German occupation of Netherlands. So okay. uh, that's just kind of a fun fact. Uh, he was a complicated... <laughs> <laughs> he had a complicated birth that could... So... From basically this sentence on is all a neurosurgeon's description of his background. Because there was a lot of psychological studies done on this man because of the way the justice system works in the Netherlands. So I'll get to that. But all this next description is basically from a report pulled from a neurosurgeon and a psychiatrist. So he had a complicated birth that could possibly have caused brain damage due to lack of oxygen. He suffered a concussion at the age of 10, suffering from severe headaches for years. He was also thoroughly spoiled by his mother and his father described him as, and his father, and was described as too dominant. Okay. During his time at elementary school in Terrer, he was an outcast and referred to as Crazy Little Willem. Uh, something he Crazy later- Crazy Little Willem over there! <laughs> Willem! Uh, something he later used to justify his actions. Uh, during this time from extreme bullying, Willem started to collect morbid items such as dead bugs and dead frogs. <laughs> okay. Should have been named Weird Little Willem, but <laughs> seems Fine. like a bit of a missed opportunity, but okay. <laughs> Weird Little Willem. Uh, he soon gained notoriety in his home village for his cruelty... Cruelty? Cruelty. God damn it! Stop sounding out all of the vowels. <laughs> Not every word is Dutch and you're like, Cruelty. Cruelty. <laughs> oh, fuck. Okay, I'm sorry. He soon gained notoriety in his home village for his cruelty towards animals, especially dogs, cats, and ducks. Ducks are assholes anyway, but when he was, it's mostly geese that are assholes, but so. Geese are angry. Ducks are not. It's true. When he was eight years old, his brother described him as an evil person. He had little contact at school and was a loner. Okay. Until the age of 12, he mainly stole from his parents and brothers, but then he began to steal and break in with to neighbors and other villagers, and at the age of 14, he left school in... Elfin on the Rhine in 1956 to look for work. Uh, during this time, he started to dream about raping and killing women. At 14? At 14. Dreams, shooting for the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I mean, uh, not. Over the years, uh, he had basically just multiple years of just one unsteady job after the other. 
so he had 15 different jobs between 68 and 73, 1968 and 1973, mm-hmm. alone, interspersed with long periods of unemployment. Oh, no. He was known for his flying temper, his tantrums, and his destructiveness, along with his violent actions around town. Uh, his contact with girls from the village were difficult. They found him a creep and were disgusted by him. That was a direct quote from the neuroscientist's reports. So I left it well, in. So I was like, that's funny. He uh, sounds kind of like a creep. He so sounds a bit like a creep. So where'd you keep all those dead frogs again? <laughs> in his pockets. <laughs> I got dead frogs for days. <laughs> Hello, you wanna my baby. A <laughs> Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Funny joke that I do, right? Nope. With a dead frog? I'll go put it back in my pocket. It's okay. Bye. <laughs> God. Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, so he never really did well. Not in the pub, not with girls, not at home. And he um, basically just sucked at life. <laughs> he just, just to sum it up. He was not good at so anything. The neurosurgeon's last I psychiatrist who wrote this report, I couldn't find his full name, and his last name was Odrians, I guess. Odrians? Believes that one event in particular had a major impact on further development. Um, In 1966, Van Eyck's girlfriend, a caretaker in a retirement home, broke up with him after a few months. How did I know it would be a rejection? Mm -hmm. So he had a criminal record since the police court in... um, Haig had imposed a fine of 60 guilders on him in 1964 for theft of batteries from drag lines. So when he was, like, um, 20 years old, mm-hmm. um, he stole a chest with tools and a grease gun. And then a few weeks after the breakup with his girlfriend, he got a second conviction followed in 1966, um, this time to eight months in prison, of which one month was suspended because he had two other, other stolen lead and batteries during a burglary. So his first, like, series of, like, actual crimes that got him arrested mm-hmm. happened right after that first breakup with his girlfriend. You know, you need to teach your kids coping mechanisms. Like, I get it. It sucks. But don't take it out on the world. Yeah. Okay. That's all I got. Um, so by the order of the court, he was put under the supervision of the Protestant Probation Service for his, who first had him examined psychotic psychiatrically (laughs) sound it out you can do it you got it um the neurologist dr fm havermans noted that van eyck was easily irritated and that he could act aggressively if not utterly explosively uh this suspect did not tolerate frustration in addition he showed gross gaps in the intellectual field which in turn could be due to abnormalities in his brain his conclusion and the prospects were not particularly favorable. So basically, he I think he was illiterate, too. Like, he couldn't read. Um, and there was, like, a lot of other, like, learning things that went his, along with it. Yeah, his wires were a bit crossed in his brain. Right. Where things were not connecting the way they should be. And then, I believe in the Netherlands, you have, like, that you have to do military service. Um, it's the Netherlands. And he was rejected for performing his military service on psychological grounds. Okay. Um, and the code that they had listed it under was S5. There was no, like, description. It was just marked as an S5, and he was um, rejected for him. Okay. So, on Monday, June 21st, 1971, a day laborer found a naked, dead woman in a ditch of a pasture between North Holland neighborhood of uh, 
Wakel and the village of Kudelstart, uh, west of uh, El Tihorn, I think, while mowing. <laughs> I'm just like, in case all of you just happen to have a map in front of you, it's west of this. And yeah, that's east, mm, it's the same thing in my case that yeah, I'm doing. It's just I'm like, I don't know where trying to triangulate is. in case you want to see where the dead body was found. But sure. Uh, her clothes lay in a pile along the ditch. It took more than 10 hours of the police for, took more than 10 hours for the police to discover her identity. Uh, and it was established based on a repair marked engraved in her watch. It turned out to be Cora Mantle, who was living in Hugo, Hugo de Grootland in, uh, uh, L.T. I can't, I'm sorry. (laughs) Just so you know, almost every single article I read, I had to Google Translate the entire article. So I have to tell you about a couple of funny things that got translated. And as I was reading through it, I was like, mm, I feel like that's not what I was originally saying, but okay. That's like my my Colombian Fritzel one. I was like, I had to translate a few things yeah. and still not a lot of information. Uh, she was 15 at the time, but seemed much older in appearance and behavior. Okay. The pathologist during the medical ac- examination found... Uh, that Cora, sorry, the pathologist during the medical examination found that the murderer had strangled the victim, presumably with a rope or a cord, and that he had raped her both vaginally and anally. Hey, ouch, my holes. I think she was dead when he did that. Hey, ouch, my dead holes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. God damn it, Amanda. Despite a reward of 10,000 guilders, which the father of Cora promised on top of the 5,000 guilders that the public prosecutor had promised, the police did not go a step further and could not find anything. Um, The commander of the National Police in the District of Amsterdam did not expect the murder to be resolved quickly. One of his quoted sentences was, of course I can be mistaken, but I don't think we're dealing with a psychopath murderer here. After three days of investigation, there was still little light in the murder. The case was marked as a crime of passion, and the commander uh, commented on the progress of the investigation by saying "There's no, there, there is a clear line in it and, the, and on the unknown murderer. I don't have the impression that he was out to kill. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Uh, so because Cora Ma- uh, Mantle was, was planning on starting a new job the morning of the murder at a jeweler in, um, the jeweler was regarded as a suspect for some time, but then was dismissed. Okay. So then the case kind of went cold. Um, so fast forward four years later on Monday, August 19th, 1974 at half past eight in the morning, the national police discovered the body of 44 year old, uh, Horkin nurse, uh, Alchi Vanderplatt. I think is how you say her name. That it's is a mouthful. A A L T J E. All the J's always throw yeah. me off. <laughs> Not quite sure, but I believe that's right. So the police suspect that the nurse had fallen victim to a lust murderer. Okay. The murder was probably committed Sunday evening at a quarter past eight. The woman was on her way from church that e- set Sunday evening to her sister's house. Um, she was left behind a two meter high mountain of earth that was heavily mutilated and was heavily mutilated. Um, she had a torn belly, a cut off, her left breast was cut off, and there were countless deep cuts and stab wounds at the throat. Sounds like Jack the Ripper. Yes. 
when I, that was translated, um, it said, countless deep knife stabs. <laughs> knife stabs. <laughs> knife stabs at throat. And I was like, uh, that's not right. <laughs> it just seems a little more detailed than it needs to be, you know? Yes. <laughs> and um, she lay naked on her back in a cornfield not far um, from the road between Cortner and um, Neovane. At the end of the road, Van Eyck lived in his small white houseboat on which he had written the words De Freehide, uh, which it translates to the freedom, with blood red dripping paint. Several people had seen Van Eyck riding his moped on the evening of the murder, um, also around the place where um, Alchi was murdered. So on Wednesday, August 21st, the Central Police arrested Van Eyck on his houseboat, where he had lived since the beginning of 1974. He denied having anything to do with the murder and having committed a burglary at the time of the murder, but eventually he made a confession around 2 o'clock um, in the morning on the night of Friday the 23rd. And Saturday, 24th. So just kind of middle of the night. Right. He's, and he committed to both Alchi and Cora's murders. He admitted to them? Yes. Okay. Um, did I say committed? Yes, you did. No, I meant to say admitted. <laughs> that's what, that's where I was going with that. It's okay. He stated that on the night of Cora's murder, after visiting the cafe, he went to a movie, and between 12 and half past 12, he saw Cora on... The Standerplein, which I think is like the highway area. Uh-huh. Because she had missed the last bus home after a date with her boyfriend in Amsterdam, she was hitchhiking by the side of the road. Safe. 70s, you know? It's true. Um, he had been praying for a hitchhiker for some time. So he had been, it didn't matter who she was or where she wanted to go, he had been hoping and f- on finding a hitchhiker for a while. <sighs> He knew exactly what he was doing and had been traveling around the area for years looking for a hitchhiker, a lonely cyclist, or a hiker off by themselves. Fucker. Um, Van Eyck said in one of the... So he was interviewed by um, an author who kind of studies serial killers. Mm -hmm. And during one of his interviews, he stated, I had already decided for myself that I was going to kill her. And when I took a different path near Ulithorn... Then she indicated and stopped there. I said to her, we're going to say goodbye to each other. When she refused and tried to get out of the car, then the accident happened. The accident. Okay. And it was asked, accident? And he said, well, when I strangled her with my scarf and drove to the the end at the Quakel, where there I undressed her and threw her in a ditch. Later I told the police that I had sex with her, but actually that is not true. He raped her dead body. He oh, st- he states that if she had cooperated voluntarily, she would not have. I would not have killed her. At the same time, though, he knew that in a winding way, he thought at the time that if there was a way to assault a woman, he would have to kill her if he wanted. He didn't want to be arrested. Um, after Cora Van Eyck stated he still had the same fantasies and nightmares and went looking for another hiker or hitchhiker. The chances were not for the taking. Um, so he kind of moved on. And then on the evening of the 18th, uh, Van Eyck saw Alchi walking on the, the road again. As he would later tell police, the thought occurred to him to do something with the woman. So he went to his houseboat where he picked up a knife. Then he drove the woman, uh, drove behind her with his moped. He approached her with a knife in his hand and said, you have to go with me. 
Under the threat of knife, he took her to a place where he later murdered her in a horrible way. He would have, he instructed her to undress and lie down on the floor, but when she resisted and he resisted the attempts of, to rape her and started screaming, he panicked and killed her with 16, I didn't fix it, 16 knife stabs. <laughs> <laughs> With 16 stabs to her chest and throat. Uh, a pathologist examination counted actually 27 stabs and cuts during the section, um, and 16 of them alone in the left chest, and three of them had pierced her heart and two in the aorta. Oh my gosh. So she was just, she was done. There was no getting, coming yeah. back from that. So... On June 26, 1975, he was sentenced by the court of the Hague, I think, to 18 years and TBS. So, Netherlands has a, and I think it's unique to the Netherlands. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the way you spell say this. It's referred to in basically every site as TBS because it's spelled. Are you ready? T-E-R-B-E-S-C-H-I-K-K-I-N-G-S-T-E-L-L-I-N-G. Yes. You lost me after T-E-R. <laughs> yeah, there's just, just a lot of consonants yeah. and vowels just kind of scattered around an entire very long word. Genuine. Okay, so the Dutch language, just gotta say, genuinely, it looks like somebody just did this on a keyboard. Yes. And I think it to sounds us, really cool yeah. like, when people talk it. But trying to read it, it literally looks just like someone took, like, just was typing random keys on a keyboard. Yeah. It looks like what happens when I'm typing without looking at where my fingers are on the keyboard, and they're, like, a little to the left, so, like, all of the words right. are, like, weird. Yeah. No, that's that's what it always mm-hmm. reminds me of when I see words from, like, the Dutch language, or yeah. even, like, some, like, Russian things. Yeah. It's like, I, it just, Agreed. I get it, mm-hmm. but, man... So, what TBS is, is it's a provision of the Dutch criminal code that allows for a period of treatment for following a prison sentence for mentally disordered offenders. Okay. Um, Evaluation and the exchange of knowledge about the TBS approach and its effectiveness. So, what happens is you're sentenced to 18 years in prison and TBS so that what I'm, from what I understood and gathered is that instead of going to, like, prison, you're entered into, like, a psychology, psychological, like, reform program. Okay. Where you have to go, you go through, like, psychological studies, and you're, and they, they're really they, big believers in rehabilitation. Right. They evaluate you regularly. Right. And- so, in accordance with the requirement of the Attorney General, his lawyer uh, proposed a shorter sentence so that the su- suspect will motivate to cooperate in the therapy so that he can heal. However, the judge was like, eh, not going to happen. Um, and after his imprisonment in the late 1980s, he went to, so he has to do his years of prison and then he has to go to the TBS. Okay. And so what his lawyer was saying is do less prison, more TBS. And the judge was like, mm, you killed two girls. So, no. Right. <laughs> nice try. But- nice try, though. So, um, the details of the murders were read out during the trial that and were so disgusting that some of the prosecutors had to vomit. Um oh. And so once his imprisonment was done in the late 80s, he went to the Van Medsig Clinic in Grogenheim for nursing. Okay. Um, and at that clinic, he resisted any psychological disintegration against any form of the treatment and was one of the most difficult patients in the clinic ever. Oh. 
Psychiatrists suspected that Van Eyck's abnormal behavior was due to brain damage sustained during his birth. However, Van Eyck refused any investigation. Huh. And in uh, a report that Dr. Adrians drew up about Van Eyck in 1975, it, de- it states that Van Eyck is a psychopath of the purest water. All right. So in the... Um, However, in the 70s and 80s, psychiatry was still regarded heavily as a saving technique and a rehabilitation technique, in which it can be, but sometimes it's not. And mm-hmm. it was heavily regarded as we can rehabilitate anyone. Right. But um, because they were believing that man is supposed to be the product of his environment and upbringing, so if they put them in an environment where it's mentally stable and they're trying to help them work through their issues, it should allow anyone to be rehabilitated. Right. However, Van Eyck was not having any of it. He did not give a fuck. Oh, so, all right, all right. But he was allowed to, um, because he, he, even though he was structurally, like, he was against all of the psychiatry and the, he was pretty well behaved. So he was allowed certain per, uh, permissions and things like that. Right. So he was allowed to place a personal ad in the newsballs van het nuden <laughs> god bless you my child thank you gazuntite <laughs> um in march of 1980 and it stated young man 38 is looking for an introduction to a woman children no objection a divorced woman who has five children responded so he basically was able to place a personal ad for a pen pal mhm um when that was uh Translated, they translated it to correspondence friend. <laughs> correspondence friend. I need me a correspondence Which friend. I like almost better than pen pal. Mm-hmm. But so after initial hesitation, intensive contact was established that eventually led to a first visit to Van Eyck in the in the um, TBS location. At the end of this meeting, Van Eyck informed her that he was stuck for something very serious: the murder of two women. So she didn't know this? Not as a pen pal, but then when he met her in person, at the end of the meeting, he told her why he was in the TBS. Okay. And she, although she, at first she was scared to death, she eventually married him. Oh, well, good. Then I, she oh. married him while he was still in prison in 1982, or the in the TBS system in 1982. However, she kept the real reason for which Willem was convicted a secret from her children and family until 1988 when he was acting out and being very violent. And they were like, seriously, mom, who the fuck is this guy? And he, Van Eyck, once he was released and was part of the family, was uh-huh. like, told them all what he did. So, um, however, while he was still in TBS, the, his marriage built up the appearance that he could function socially again. Okay. And that his re-socialization, socialization was right on track. However, during a closed session of the court in 1988 to determine whether the TBS measure should be extended for another two years. So basically he's in TBS until they say you're a normal human and can be a part of society again. Mm Mm-hmm. So you could be for life, you could be for two years. It's normally a period of like four years. So they at the they were trying to determine if it should be extended for an additional two years. Psychiatrists believed his wife had a moderating influence, but as soon as it really mattered, it, uh, if she did not stand behind him, um, it could affect his mental stability. 
Right. So what they were saying is that his psychological balance relied too heavily on their, his relationship with her. Agreed. And that should a breach occur, the danger of crime increased exponentially, while on the other hand, his aggressive needs would isolate him too much from society in if his wife were to leave him. Okay. So they advised to extend the TBS at least a maximum of the two-year period, and it was also decided by the court on in 1988, um, and that was upheld. So they had originally kind of tried to negotiate it down to one year, and the court, uh, and the court upheld it to two years. Okay. But on June 6, 1990, it is advised uh, the director of treatment affairs abolished the TBS of Van Eyck, so he was allowed to go home. Okay. Um, however, even though they did that, despite a psychiatrist a psychiatrist report that said the core of his problem has not been substantially addressed in his chaotic inner world, the psychotic core has been truncated. However, it remains a weak spot. Um, basically, they were still saying that, he's, yeah, he's acting normal, but all it takes is one trigger and he's going to lose his shit again. Right, like his trigger... The safety's on his gun right now. Easily you could take it off and he could right. snap. However, he was still released in okay. 1990. And, um... However, their relationship... Okay, so then the psychiatrist warned that if he was rejected again by a woman, the chance of reoccurrence was very high before he was released, but they still released him anyway. So, his relationship with um, Adri would ensure that he remained on the right track for a while. However, the three children of Adri no longer had any faith in this and had broken off all contact with their mother and Willem. Okay. Um, they moved to the Gro- Grogenheim village of Harkstead, Steed, where they moved into a farm with one of Adri's children. However, it soon went downhill with the relationship, making things worse with Van Eyck. Okay. A year after his resignation, so a year after he was released from TBS, Van Eyck started drinking more and more and more. Fights arose. Uh, His wife would eventually leave him, and he would regularly take prostitutes to his home in Hartford. Great. Um, So on November 5th, 1993, the corpse of 23-year-old Romanian Michel Fatol was found in a ditch. Then on January 21st, 1995, the body of 31-year-old street prostitute um, Annalise Reinders was discovered, um, and then on June, July 17th, 2001, the naked body of 34-year-old, uh, Sasha Schechner was also found near Harkstead. So all of these bodies were found in and around Harkstead. Okay. Um, however, Sasha's kind of was the tying in factor because her clothes were found several months later near Van Eyck's house. They were thrown into the canal in a plastic bag weighted with stones. Uh, because Schechner's clothes were found near Van Eyck's house, he became a prime suspect, and on November 12th, 2001, police arrested Van Eyck. He soon confessed to the murders of Michelle Fatol, Annalise Reinders, and Sasha Schneckner. Between 1993 and 2001, there were several other bodies found. Uh, in 1995, the torso of a 24-year-old prostitute, um was found, and it was Antoinette Bont was found, and then other body parts were later found in a sports bag. Also, when that was translated, it translated to the hull of her body. And I was like, that is disgusting. That's disturbing <laughs> sounding. That is so disturbing sounding. The hull of her body. Ugh. 
Um, other body parts were later found in a sports bag, and then two years later, in 1997, the body of 19-year-old prostitute Shirley uh, Hydras was found around the same time there was a Yolanda Meyer, um, also found. Several other men were suspected of these killings, but all turned out to be innocent. Willem Van Eyck never confessed to the killing of these women, but it is publicly believed that he was the one that was responsible. Okay. Uh, at the start of the trial, Van Eyck was represented by a... This is weird. He was represented by a lawyer, Willi- Willem Anker, which was very confusing for the relatives of Shirley Hydras, who was one of the women that they believe he killed, but he hasn't committed to killing, uh. because uh, they were... He was also representing them. So then, um, mm. Anchor dropped Van Eyck as a, um, client as soon as Shirley, he was declared a suspect in the murder of Shirley. So. Okay. It was so, just kind of a weird coincidence. Right. Um, after going through a series of lawyers, Van Eyck was sentenced on, he went through like six attorneys. Um, was sentenced on November 7th. I don't think anyone wanted to represent him. Well, basically. And he was kind of an asshole, so. Fair. Um, on November 7th, 2002, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of the last three victims. Van Eyck appealed, uh, but the Supreme Court of the Netherlands upheld the ruling. Um, he several times requested clemency, and he was like, the argument was that he was never allowed to listen to the, his confession tapes, and... It's just sob story after sob story. It was a lot of like, well, you guys never. I was. I did the good, the right thing, and and um admitted to doing these killings and blah 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 blah. And then I wasn't allowed my rights to listen to the confession tapes, and I should be able to hear what the police are putting up in this. Like it was just like this big long like what was me story that right. he tried multiple multiple times to get clemency because he failed. Felt it was like an unfair. He felt wronged. Right. However, um, it finally went all the way to the Supreme Court in the Netherlands, and they held up, held, upheld the ruling. Um, and basically, he, after the Supreme Court ruled on it, you're fucking done. Right. There's no more appealing after Yeah. That. So, in July of 2019, um, it was re- revealed that Van Eyck had died in prison on June 19th of 2019. Oh, so recently. Mm-hmm. We're talking like a month ago. Yep. So, Anatomy of a Serial Killer is, I believe, a book that a Dutch author, I couldn't find his full name, um, that he visited him quite often. He's wrote, written a couple of books of other serial killers. Um, so, during one of his visits to, to Van Eyck, about his, he asked him about his nightmares and perverted fantasies. Um, and Van Eyck stated that it started when he was 21 or 22, and it, was, it wasn't it was just nightmares. It was dreams, even beautiful in the beginning, but they became more and more violent and inhuman. He was quoted to say, I dreamed of cutting, never of firearms, and from women I knew from our village or from the neighborhood. It only got worse in the long run, and when I was 29, 30, it really became a drama. He he would use the words like I liked the destruction of a woman, but I don't think it's that is the right word. Huh. Um, uh, he one of the, another psychiatrist stated that it was a very crazy situation that lasted for years. He walked around with these fantasies twenty four hours a day, seven days awake for multiple years before committing a murder. 
And um, he also spoke to another psychiatrist in the late 70s and was quoted to, to state he was lusting and having a... And, and he was... What did he say? He described his dreams as lusting, having, and destroying. When asked what Van Eyck meant by that, he said that maiming, it has to do with cutting, cutting open, causing serious physical injury. You can say it in so many ways, but it boils down to destruction of a woman. Oh. He's got some issues with the women, So homeboy was just straight up motherfucking crazy. He just... Wow. All right. I'd never heard of him, and I was like, that's... And it's fucked up. I'm sorry, Netherlands, but what are you fucking doing? He raped and killed two women, and then he got out knowing multiple psychiatrists were like, yeah. No. No. Yeah. No. No. That's not... That's a very Midwest way of saying no. If you say yeah, no, it means no. no. If you say no, yeah, it means... No, yeah. It means yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You always start with the one that you don't mean. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh... There was a lot of psychological discussion in that one, so I thought you'd mm-hmm. enjoy it. It's just, he had all the makings of a serial killer from the beginning. Right. And like but. I said, he clearly had these wants for a long time before he actually followed through with them. I just wish it was something that, like, if you're having those feelings, go fucking talk to somebody. Like, like take care of your yeah. shit. Yeah. Like, I can't judge someone for a mental illness if it brings them to that, like, thought, but I get upset when someone doesn't try to do something, because, especially if they're at a point where it's like, they know what's right and wrong, and they know that it's not okay Mm -hmm. to be thinking those things, and there's the people that genuinely just don't, it doesn't compute that it's not right. Right. But. Oh, that's wild. No, that was... Interesting. Very interesting. It's a wild ride, Netherlands. Yeah. Good job. Hey, thanks. <laughs> Lies. You got the pink eye? No, I got itchy down here. Like always. You got the conjunctivitis? And so I rubbed my eye a lot the last story you told. Because it's this one, right? That's red? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It got really itchy this last, like... I'm itchy. Half hour. All right. What are you going to tell me? Man, your enthusiasm just keeps getting <laughs> higher and higher. Well, you keep yelling at me, so I don't know what you want me to do. We only have a quarter battery left in the charges upstairs, so hurry the fuck up. I don't know why. I'm you. sorry. I'm, I'm yelling at you. I'm ready. You took too long. I'm like, okay, ready. I dropped my phone. Waiting for you, princess! <laughs> hurry the fuck up! <laughs> what? <laughs> Me? <laughs> oh, she's mad. <laughs> Me? Me? Hurry the fuck up! <laughs> Alright. I'm ready. You ready to tell me a story now? I am. Alright, let's go. I'm gonna tell you the story of John Christie. You okay. angry, angry human being. <laughs> so, John Reginald Holiday Christie. What a name! Just call him John Christie from now on. John Reginald. John Reginald was born on April 8th of 1899 in, this is where it's like yours, in Northrum, near Halifax, in the West Riding of Yorkshire. <laughs> cool, I know exactly where that is now. Oh, okay. <laughs> that place. You got the longitude and latitude as well? 
No. Okay. <laughs> Being the sixth of seven children, he had a rough relationship with his father named Ernest, who was a carpet designer. He was a cold man and showed little emotion towards his children and would severely punish them for the most trivial offenses. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, John was coddled by his mother and he was also bullied by his older sisters. So he kind of got a little bit of everything in his family. There was no like medium ground of just like okay, being able to be your own human without somebody being mad at you or right. praising you like you did something amazing. Mm-hmm. His peers at the time referred to him as a queer lad who would, don't even, <laughs> who would, quote, keep, to him, keep himself to himself and was not very popular. All right. All right. Sounds like a fun, fun guy. Right? <laughs> his, his grandfather, David, died on March 24th of 1911 after a long illness and he was being cared for in John's house and actually died in the house as well. Okay. Later, John said seeing his grandfather's corpse laid out on the table gave him a feeling of power and well-being. So homie popped a boner seeing his dead grandpa on the table. Right. He's like, ooh, death. I like that. Ooh. Yeah. At the... Why the fuck does it... Just go away. Sorry. <laughs> At the age of 11, John was awarded a scholarship to the Halifax Secondary School, where he was in love with math, especially algebra. Fucking nerd! I liked math. That's like I said, fucking nerd. He also did well in woodwork and history. He had an IQ of 128, which is above average, but isn't like genius level by any means. Um, He was a churchgoer. He, as most everyone was at the time, I mean, Mm -hmm. honestly, everybody kind of had their own church, whether it be some weird spirituality thing or like a Christian church or something. And he would sing in the choir. He was also a boy scout and he left school in April of 1913 and began working at a cinema as an assistant projectionist, which I thought was kind of cool because I was like, 1913, that seems like really early in the, like, movie making days. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of cool. hmm John was always impotent. We're just going to get right to the dick. Oh, so he didn't get a Woody seeing his dead grandpa. He just hoped no, he wanted a Woody. He just, he just liked the idea of death. Okay. I guess. Um, he failed his very his first attempt at sex, and he was called <laughs> Reggie No Dick because he's Reginald. Um, and can't do Bullying it. Bullying isn't funny, guys. You missed his other one. Can't do it, Christy. <laughs> that's not funny because some people. Okay. Some people call me Christy, and then that's can't do it, Christy. That's like the story of my life, man. <laughs> Too close to home. It's too close to what home. What they're talking about is dick. Does your dick work? <laughs> Have a dick. It's even worse. <laughs> Throughout his young adulthood, <laughs> if they called him no dick, Christy, would be right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> Reggie, no dick, and can't do it, Christy. Uh, the names followed him throughout his young adulthood. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, no. no. No worries, though. Later on, I read that his genitals were examined after death, and they were normal. He was just fucked up. Oh, so he had normal genitals. That's good. He just got off on things that normal people were not okay with. So, like, by so he might have popped him, a boner. does that mean, like, he would walk... Oh, maybe he did pop a boner yeah, for dead so grandpa. Yeah, so he might have. But I'm, my question is... Followed him through his young adult life, so he'd be just walking down the street, and be like, "Hey, it's Reggie No Dick. What's right. up? <laughs> What's up, Reggie No Dick?" <laughs> walking to the bars. Hey, hey I can't, can't do it, Christy. <laughs> it's like, shut up, guys. Stop talking about my dick. I got dead. I got a boner for dead grandpa, so I you know it works. Oh my god. Oh, Jesus, Mary throughout Joseph. the rest of his life, <laughs> throughout the rest of his life, he had sexual difficulties, and. Most of the time, he could only perform with sex workers, and I think it's because it gave him, like, a sense of power more than having, Mm -hmm. like, consensual relations. John Christie enlisted in the Army in September of 1916, and he was called for action on April 12th of 1917, joined the 52nd Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Regiment, and served in the infantry. One year after getting assigned to this regiment, he was dispatched to France, where Christie was seconded to the Duke of Wellington's regiment as a singleman. I don't know what any of that means. I read it. I wrote it down. I was like, cool. For all you military nerds, maybe you know more things. I don't fucking know. (laughs) Within a few months, he was... Mustard gassed in an attack. Oh, the and, worst. Yeah, and he spent a month in a military hospital recovering from it. Mustard's the best. Like, I love it on, like, all... It's like a good condiment, so the fact that they turned it into gas makes me sad. It's always fucking food with you. <laughs> it's not just me. You like food, too. I know, but you don't say something about, like, something that is kind of, like, sounds like a food or sounds like a restaurant. Is and it I go mustard on gas made out of the same stuff that mustard is? Mustard, like, it's either mustard root or mustard yeah. seed. I'm just saying, it's a delicious condiment. But just because I say mustard, we don't have to talk about it for a minute. <laughs> I thought this was our podcast and we could do what we want. Uh, we can. I want to talk about mustard for a minute. Okay. I'm done now. Continue. Bitch. I'm going to finish that sentence quick. (laughs) He was in a military hospital for a month, and he said that the injury from this attack permanently affected his vocal cords, and that he could never speak much louder than a whisper after that for the rest of his life. Oh, poor no dick Reggie. Uh, Ludwig Kennedy, which I was going to look up because I wasn't doing this when it was on Mm -hmm. the website. It just was highlighted. I'm assuming he's a psychologist said that there was no sign of this actually affecting his vision or even his voice, and that if he remained mute, it was a decision by him psychologically, not because he wasn't physically able to talk as well. So he's just like a, he just wanted to talk in a creepy whisper for the rest of his life. Yeah, he just, it's like he, in his head, he made himself sicker than he was from this attack, but physically his vocal cords were fine. So, so far, his vocal cords were fine, and his dick was fine. Yeah. Okay. So that's why I'm I'm kind of curious if he had some, like... Wire loose in his yeah, brain. Yeah, something not, not quite connecting. And uh, his reaction and Christie's exaggeration of the effects of the attack and other things stemmed from his underlying personality disorder that caused him to exaggerate and fake illness 
as a ploy for attention and sympathy. So hypochondria. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was demobilized from the army in October of 1919. He then joined the Royal Air Force on December 13th of 1923. So like four years later, Mm -hmm. but was discharged in August the following year. Didn't say why, didn't say what happened. I don't know if he just left and he didn't like it or what, but he was discharged. John Christie married on May 10th of 1920 while he was in or between these two things uh, to Ethel Simpson from Seth from Sheffield, Sheffield. Fuck. She continued having or he continued having problems getting hard. That was my own wording. And I was like, I feel like that's inappropriate, but he couldn't pop a accurate, but accurate had problems getting hard and still would visit sex workers regularly to have sex because that's the only way he was getting hard early on ethel had a miscarriage so he could once in a while apparently or she was banging somebody else yeah and the couple moved back to sheffield but they separated after four years of marriage after his marriage to or after his marriage christy moved to london so they're technically still married they're just separated Um, But he moved to London and was in and out of incarceration for the next decade. Mm -hmm. He he was sent to prison January of 1934, and the couple reunited when he was released. Okay? Okay. So he released, they reunited in Rollington Place. In January of 1921, he became a postman in Halifax, (laughs) and his first convict conviction was for stealing postal orders on February 20th and March 26th in which he had spent three months of prison on April or he was sent to prison on April 12th of 1921 sentenced to three months but was released in June okay Okay. then he was convicted on January 15th of 1923 for obtaining money under false pretenses and violent conduct, so he stole from somebody, yeah. where he was put into put on probation for 12 months. Mm-hmm. He then committed two counts of larceny during the year of 1924, for which he was, he received three to six months imprisoned in September. Then on May... 13th of 1929 while working as a lorry driver. So this is right after he got out working as a lorry driver. He was convicted of assaulting Maud Cole while living with his, with her in Estera and was sentenced to six months hard labor for assaulting her. So after he gets done with this hard labor, he then hit her over the head with a cricket bat, and which he, at the trial, they called a murderous act, and he was sent back to prison again. So he attacked so, her again. So he got hard labor, attacked her again, got sent to prison, and then he was convicted of stealing a car from Sir Robert McLean, McAlpine. <sighs> That's a weird one. McAlpine. And was re-imprisoned for another three months in November of 1933. So he's just like a fucking fuck. Yeah, he's just fuck. Like, <laughs> everything. It's like, I get out, something else. Get out, something else. Get right. out, something else. He just wants to be in prison. 
He so just likes it. Just stay there forever. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Like that just presses off, and then the thing pops up, and then it yells at me. Christy and Ethel got back together in 1934. So after oh, he got out from stealing a car, they reunited. And it feels so good. He discontinued his petty crimes, but was still banging hookers, right? Girl, it's like <laughs> it's like my next thing is, but. Did still see prostitutes on a regular basis. Knew it! In 1937, three years later, the couple moved to a top floor flat in a rundown neighborhood in London. The next year, which was the Rollington neighborhood that they were connected in, the next year they moved once again to the ground floor in a flat of a three-story brick terrace. Okay. The living conditions were considered squalid. I was just going to say, that sounds fancier than it is, I bet you. <laughs> yep. With all of the residents sharing a single outdoor lavatory. Ooh. None having their own bathroom. And the only, if I remember right, the only flat there that had a kitchen was the ground flat that they lived in. Okay. So everybody else kind of just lived in basically a studio apartment without a kitchen like a and a bathroom. Just a, just a room. room. Got just it. Just a fucking room. It was also very close to an above-ground metropolitan line, so it was very noisy, and the noise was actually described as deafening. So it was just kind of a very unpleasant place to live, but I bet you it was affordable in comparison to other places, and so people did it. After three years of working as as the foreman in a cinema on King Street in Hammershire... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was my... In case you know where that is. Hammershire. <laughs> uh, the Second World War started, and Christy applied to join the war police, which... Basically, it was stand-in policemen for the military that left. hmm I guess. From what I gathered. And was accepted, even with his criminal record, because there was a failure to even check the cl- criminal records of the people applying. He was assigned to Harrowing Road Police Station, where he met Gladys Jones, with whom he began an affair. So he could get it up for her. Well, Gladys was probably into some kinky shit or something. Maybe <laughs> she liked some weird stuff. Their relationship lasted until the mid nineteen until mid nineteen forty three, which was a little under a year. Mm-hmm. When her husband, because she had a husband, oh, oh, damn. A serving soldier returned from duty in World War II. When he learned of the affair, he went to the house to confront his wife and found Christy there and beat the hell out of him. (laughs) Um, It seemed that his love of of street walkers did not die at this time. So he's still banging them? Yep, still banging the, the prostitutes and... Even through the affair, he was doing it, too. On August 24th of 1943, right after the affair ended, Christy met a 21-year-old sex worker named Ruth Fierst. For somebody with the names No Dick Christy and... Sure getting... Swinging dick. He's laying pipe all over town. (laughs) 
I'm telling you, he probably needs some like weird, like pretend you're dead or something, yeah. like something weird. Uh, whom only occasionally worked as a sex worker when she needed supplementary money to her munitions work income. Mm-hmm. So she had a job and just sometimes she didn't have enough money. So she would do sex work, which was relatively normal, not yeah. normal, but a common, yeah, common. a common thing, um, in the early 20th century. But anyway, so she, the two met while Ruth was soliciting for clients at a snack bar. Sounds like know. my kind of place. Right? I'm like, I don't know. I want to live in a, I want to be at a snack bar. I'm hungry. I want to be at a snack bar. <laughs> so they got mustard clients? there? And probably because I'm assuming there's like hot dogs of some sort. And pretzels? Christy invited her <laughs> um, back to his flat for sex. Okay? Okay. So he was still married at this time to Ethel, but. She was out of town visiting relatives, so he was making use of that. Okay. After the exchange, Christy impulsively strangled her on the bed with a rope. He hit her body. That sounded like a game of Clue. I know. After I said that, I was like, it's like, hmm. With, with a rope. <laughs> Colonel Mustard. Colonel Mustard. In the bedroom. With, with a, a rope. rope. <laughs> <laughs> He hid her body under the floorboards Ooh. in the living room at first, telltale heart style. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking of when dun, he did that. Dun, dun. Right? Then he buried her body in the back garden the following evening. So this is a three-story place with multiple tenants. So he's doing this with people still being in this building and Ooh. still like living in the area on the property. So he's got some balls, I, I'd say. Oh, there it is. It's like, I know where to go. (laughs) Yikes. Okay. (laughs) Not long after the murders, near the end of the year, Christy resigned as a special constable in the police force. He was then employed as a clerk at an Acton radio company. Okay. There he met Muriel Amelia Edie on October 7th of 1944. October 7th is actually Kate's birthday, too, so I said it twice in my two different stories today. Weird. Um, Right? He invited her back to his flat, saying that he had created an invention with a special concoction that would cure her bronchitis, because she had chronic bronchitis. BJ. Right? (laughs) You need a shot of vitamin D. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But she had chronic bronchitis, so Muriel, Muriel went with him. And she was told to inhale this mixture that was in a jar with a tube inserted to the top. Like, I'm assuming it's Dude, something like a nasal spray-ish that's thing. That's fucking janky as shit. No, I'm not going to inhale that. Agreed. The mixture was actually um, Friar's Balsam, which Chrissy had used to... I don't know what that is. That was another thing that I highlighted to like look up and I didn't get to. So... I was like, I don't know if you want to look that up. F-R-I-A-R. Hold on. It's an alcoholic solution containing essential benzoin, storax, it's balsam of tolu, and aloes that is applied topically to the skin. So it's a smelly After an addition to hot water as an inhalant with expectorant activity. 
Okay. So that's technically what it's used for. Right. But... To clear the system. So, but probably not the way she's using it. Was actually Friar's balsam, which clears the system, right? Okay. So, but he used the smell to disguise natural gas, a.k.a. carbon monoxide. It doesn't have a smell. Carbon monoxide is an odorless gas. You're so fucking stupid. Why not are you, you him. At me? Like, him. Why are you yelling at He's me? He's fucking stupid. Um, once Muriel was seated, inhaling the mixture with her back turned, she soon passed out. <laughs> Not you. Him. <laughs> domestic gas. Oh, well, domestic gas is technically coal gas, which is considered carbon dioxide because it's over 15%, blah, 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 yeah. blah, all that scientific stuff. Basically, made her pass out with carbon monoxide. Oh. Once she was... How does he keep it in a jar? So, I'm assuming he burnt the coal gas into the jar... Covered it with this tube. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then she would just inhale that. Um, once she was unconscious, Christy raped her and then strangled her and buried her in the back garden as well. Yeah. Yeah. Also, that was a lot of work to make her pass out. I know. Just <laughs> calm down, Bill Nye the science guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're really overthinking this. <laughs> On Easter of 1948, Timothy and Beryl Evans moved into the top floor of Christie's building. Here, the Evans' daughter was born. In late 1949, Evans called the police and said that his wife was dead. On the first search, the police failed to find her body. I'm sorry, what? So, I'm not sure when I'll get to this, and when I do, we'll just skip it, but Evans, my thighs itches. Are you sure? Because that's not what it looks like is happening right now. I'm very sure because it's like mid thigh. Remember, I got I got short ass legs. Anyway, um, so later on it says that basically he couldn't tell them whether it'd be here or here. You know, we're gonna go ahead and wait till then. Okay, because it'll make more sense. Okay. But then they found her, their daughter, who was six weeks old, and a male fetus that was inside of her were all dead in the washroom outside. Okay, hold up. Yeah. Her daughter was only six weeks old and she was pregnant again? No, their daughter was three. You said her daughter was only six weeks old. I said their daughter and a 16-week-old fetus that was inside of her. Oh. So their daughter was like... Two or three. Oh, okay. Um, they didn't say exactly when she was born and how old she was. Okay, whatever. But either I way, was confused. Sorry. They found all, well, two of the bodies and the fetus in the. Um, he killed her daughter too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so there is a child murder today. Okay. 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 Always. No details, though. So that's okay. I'm that's, okay with that's, that. That's that's good. I'm not sure how the husband. This is my like speculating to myself as I'm typing. Not sure how the husband didn't know where it was, but whatever. Uh, She was wrapped in a blanket and then a tablecloth. The post-mortem report said that the mother and daughter both had been strangled and that Beryl, the mother, had been physically assaulted before death because she had bruising on her face. Evans first claimed that his wife was killed in a botched abortion attempt, but then he confessed while being questioned quotations around Mm -hmm. it. 
the confession was possibly fabricated by authorities because it almost seemed to fit too well and seemed artificial. After his conviction, Evans retracted his confession and accused Christie of the murders. Okay. okay. So we'll get to the details in a bit, but keep this. Keep it in your nugget. Yes. Keep that little tidbit in your nugget. On January 11th of 1950, Evans was put on trial for the murder of his daughter. Um, the prosecution didn't pursue the charges of murder with his wife, maybe for lack of evidence, maybe because it held a higher, like, sentencing for the, kid. the death of the child. I don't know. Didn't say. But Christy was the main witness in the trial. Okay. Mm-hmm. He denied Evans' accusations and gave a, and gave detailed evidence about the fights that him and his wife would have. Evans was found guilty, even though Christie's criminal record was revealed during it, during the whole trial. And he shouldn't have been considered a reliable witness Mm -hmm. at that point. He appealed on February 20th, but the appeal was refused and he was hanged on March 9th, 1950. Christie lost his job as a post post office savings banker after his, that he had held for four years after his uh, background came out there, because they didn't do a background okay. check there. But after the trial, he lost his job, too. And Evans So Evans hung. is hung. He's dead. He is dead. The police made several mistakes in dealing with this case. Imagine that. Overlooking no the remains of Christie's previous victims in the garden in Rolling Hill Place, or Rollington Place. Did which, they find those? Um, later on, but they were... But they not when they were doing the search mm-hmm. for her. Okay. Um, even though there was a femur propped up against the fence in the backyard, yeah, the garden was very small, and the fence was parallel to the wash house, so it was right next to where they found the bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, there were several searches done after Evans had confessed in placing the remains near remains in the drain, but three officers in the search. But three officers didn't find anything until they searched the washroom. They went they went there multiple times and never looked in the washroom so until, tiny. like, later. Because, so, Evans said, well, I don't know where they the bodies were laid. They're either in the front, like, drain area or whatever. Because he was trying to figure it out so that they could find, I don't know find them. Um, later, Christy actually told a story that that his dog had dug up the skull of Muriel Edie, one of the other victims, shortly after the searches were done. So he had threw the skull into the abandoned house nearby because he was afraid they were going to come back and search again and the skull was just going to be uncovered. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the search wasn't very thorough. Otherwise, they would have found all of these clues and needing to charge Christie or to at least look at Christie in interest... If the search was better conducted, four women wouldn't have had to lose their lives, basically, because following all this fun stuff, the evidence of work being done on the house was ignored, was another thing that they had an issue with. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were whispers that Evan's confession was false in the police department. Like, they they didn't believe that he actually did it, but they all kept quiet because they wanted a conviction in the... Because mm-hmm. it was a child murder. The interrogation of Evans was mishandled as well from the start. Um, telling details 
that were, they would tell him details that were part of the things they were trying to keep to themselves so that they knew that someone was telling the truth. They wouldn't actually tell him what it was, but they would say like, oh, where we found the clothes of the victims. And then he would be like, oh, it's here. You know, like he would put it together, the two and two together to put together a story so that yeah, they'd so they would alone. lead him to. Mm-hmm. Okay. He also had a nervous tick and would answer questions in a high register and sometimes giggle nervously because he didn't like, I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know. Um, some of his confession used words that were educationally higher than the level that he would know too. So it's, it's like, like they're putting like words fun. in his yeah. mouth. So either it was they he was coached or it was just completely fabricated. Okay. Christie's words were taken at face value when he said that this is what happened. I didn't do anything. Uh, and Evans had no prior issues with the law, but Christie did, and they never looked into it. Christie claimed that he was a former abortionist and was trying to excuse himself tried trying to excuse himself from the situation. And that's why he met the random girls that people kept saying, well, there's always random girls around. There's always whatever. And so they were trying to point at Christy being questionable, but then he'd be like, well, you know, I, yes, I do things that are not okay, but it's, I don't murder. So I also, yes, I do abortions for random people that ask me Mm -hmm. for abortions, but I don't kill people. Right. Um, on the morning of December 14th, 1952, Christy strangled his wife, Ethel, in bed, last being seen two days earlier. In order to cover up his wife's absence, Christy made up multiple different stories, trying to lead the inquiries away from him. He wrote to her relatives in Shetfield saying that Ethel had rheumatism and couldn't write for herself at mm-hmm. that time. Then to neighbor to one neighbor, he said that she was visiting said relatives in Sheffield. And to another neighbor, neighbor, he said that she had gone to Birmingham. Okay. Just kind of making things up as he went, it seemed. Yeah. So he resigned from his job on December 6th, um, about eight days before her murder. And was on unemployment, so after he had murdered her, she sold her, or he sold her wedding ring, her watch, and her furniture. Also, he would pick up weekly labor labor exchange, which is basically unemployment Mm -hmm. benefits. And on January 26th, he forged his wife's signature and emptied out all of her bank accounts, anything she had, savings, anything. Yeah. Christy murdered... Three more women between January 19th and March 6th of 1953. Kathleen Malinoy, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. Hectorina. That's the one I kept saying when I was typing it. I'd be like, Hectorina. Hectorina. Kathleen was a sex worker from Landbrook Grove area. Rita was visiting her sister in Landbrook Grove, but was from Belfast. And Christy met her while she was six months pregnant and murdered her. Oh, my God. Hectorina lived in London with her boyfriend, Alex Baker. At the time, she met Christy in a cafe. The three of them um, the three of them spent time together on multiple occasions, including Christy allowing them to stay 
in his place while waiting to find accommodations. Also, Christy met Hectorina on her own and talked her into coming back to the flat on her own. He then, he then persuaded his her boyfriend, who had not seen his girlfriend in days, um, to come up for to come meet him so he could hear the concerns about his missing girlfriend. Like he, they would get together and he would listen to him talk about how he had no idea where he went and all of his concerns and everything and just let him continue to worry. And was, it seemed like he almost enjoyed listening to it because he would invite him to come and talk to him like, Oh, I'm here for you. Just come talk to me. And finally for the murders of his very last three victims, he perfected the gas technique that he tried to use with Edie. Okay. Using a rubber tube connected to a gas pipe in his kitchen, which he kept closed off with a bulldog clip, he would seat his victims in the kitchen, let loose the clip, and the gas would creep into the room. But the description of his gassing didn't make any sense, because if he was to do that, it would also render him unconscious. So, because it's not, like, airtight or anything. So they're not sure if this is actually true or if this was just him falsifying something. Yeah. But however it was done, his victims were shown to be exposed to carbon monoxide, which would make them drowsy so that Christy was able to strangle them with a rope because he was a strangler. It's just Uh. how he did it. Christy repeated, repeatedly raped his three victims while they were unconscious as well as after they were dead. Yeah. Once the public heard the details of the crimes, they quickly decided, they quickly started calling him a necrophiliac, Mm -hmm. but I guess technically he's not, according to um, something that I wrote or read. It said that because he wasn't exclusively raping the victims after death, he wasn't considered a necrophiliac. He just was interested in necrophilia. That makes sense. Okay, so after strangling his last three victims, he would place the a vest or a cloth material between their legs because he had ravaged their body um, and wrap them, their semi-naked bodies, into blankets before stowing them away in a small alcove behind his back kitchen wall. And then after the three were dead, he covered it up with wallpaper. So it was just a little hole in his wall. He tucked them in there, and then he covered it with wallpaper for the last three bodies of his victims that he had. He Ew. went, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, ew, smell, 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 gross. That's, I don't like that. He went for, yeah, he went for nearly three years without incident. Having lost his post office job, Christy found employment as a clerk with the British road service. At the same time, more tenants came into the vacant, vacant rooms in the terrace the tenants were mainly were mainly immigrants that basically were just trying to find a place to stay. And mm-hmm. so they would complain about things and they weren't taken seriously because they were immigrants. At, and right. that was like, they just, the cops just didn't really take anything seriously from them. And that sucks because he's gross. Because Christy's gross. He's fucking gross. Christy moved out of his infamous Rollington Place house uh, in March of 1953, so right after he finished his last murder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, fraudulently subletting to a couple for more than he was paying, 
when the landlord visited that evening that they moved in and saw that the couple was there and not Christy, he demanded that they leave first thing the next day. Once they had left, the landlord let the other tenants in Christy's house use the kitchen. One of them discovered the alcove, and it's just so gross. I can't even imagine. She discovered the alcove and saw the dead bodies and actually, like, peeled back the paper because she, it, like, caved in when she was trying to hang something. So she peeled back the paper, discovered the dead bodies, didn't, couldn't believe her eyes, so she went and got he another... He didn't even put, like, drywall over it? He no, literally just no, stuck just... up... <gasps> yeah, discovered the dead bodies, like, couldn't believe her eyes, so she actually called in another tenant to, like, make sure that she wasn't just going crazy. She's like, Are these, this is, like, dead bodies, right? And when they when they were verified her, she called the police, and the city went crazy searching for Christy. So, because it was within, like, a couple days of him moving mm-hmm. out... After leaving his flat, Christy went to King's Cross, where he booked a hotel room for seven nights under his actual information. Stupid. Okay. He only ended up staying for four nights, though, after he discovered that people found the bodies. Yeah. And he wandered to London and spent a majority of his time in cafes and laying low. So he didn't really stay anywhere. He just kind of floated around. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, on the morning of March 31st, 1953, Christie was arrested after being challenged about his identity by a police officer in London. Okay. All he had on him was a few coins and a newspaper clipping about the Timothy Evans case. Mm-hmm. So he kept that, like, in his pocket. I don't know if he was just... Getting a woody for like, it? Right, like, getting off on it or what? At first, Christie only attempted to the was only admitted to. Mm-hmm. At first, Christie only admitted to the murders of the three women in the alcove, and later com- admitted to killing his wife. And the questioning continued when they informed Christie that they had found the skeletons in the backyard. He then also admitted to responsibility of the deaths of those women as well. Later on, he also admitted that he killed Beryl Evans, um, but he he denied that he killed the daughter. Because that's too far, yeah. apparently. Um, too bad it was after Timothy had been hung. Right. And I'm sure, you know what, that's probably why he didn't admit, admit to killing the daughter, because he got convicted of the death of... I just thought about this. Tim, Timothy got convicted of the death of his daughter, not of his wife. Yeah. So it was like, oh, but it's fine because he actually killed her. So that's fine that he got killed for that. Right. Hmm. I never thought about that until I just reread it. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, oh, that makes sense. Speculations say that he didn't admit to the child's death because he didn't want to be seen as low lower level to the jury and to the inmates that he'd end up being with because uh, child killers don't last long in prison. No, they don't. And if they do, it's not a happy, Mm-mm. happy time. Christie was tried for Ethel's murder and his trial began on June 22nd, 1953 in the very same court as Evans was tried three years earlier. He pleaded insanity and said that he had little to no memory of the events. 
Dr. Matheson was called by the prosecutors to evaluate Christie. He testified that Christie wa- had a hysterical personality, but was definitely not insane. Mm-hmm. So his insanity plea was rejected. And after deliberation for for 85... <laughs> oh, 85 minutes. Okay. I was like, why does it just say 85 after they deliberated for 85 minutes, they found him guilty, which Christie did not appeal. Okay. John Christie was hanged on July 15th, 1953. They're speedy. Yeah. Here at Pentonville prison. He had been this, it had been the same executioner as Evans who killed him. Did he make it long? And after the, huh? Did he make it long? What do you mean? Like, didn't tie the rope right, so it took him forever to die. You know what? I am not sure. It didn't say anything about that, but his words to him are pretty top-notch. Okay. After the rope was already placed around his neck and snug against him, Christy complained that his nose itched. Perry Point, which was the executioner, assured him, it won't bother you for long. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, go on, go on, go on. Christie, of course, was suspected in further crimes and murders, consider, considering his violence in the other ones. While searching, the police found four clumps of pubic hair, which he had collected, quotations around that. Ew. He claimed that they only belonged to his wife and the bodies that were found in the alcove. But only one of the tufts actually... Tufts. Mm-hmm. Ugh. <laughs> that were found matched any of the bodies that were found. And even if the two others were from his known victims that could have been missing pubic hair, that still leaves one that was unaccounted for. That's gross. I don't like that. I know. And he had three other victims, yes, but Beryl wasn't missing any. There was no removal of her hair, so they weren't even considering that. In 1978, Professor Simpson oh, was he, one. Of, so it was he was collecting like 70s, straight up 70s oh, bush. No, that this was all in 53. Oh. In 78, um, the pathologist who was involved in the case spoke out, and he said it seemed odd that Christie should have said hair came from the bodies in the alcove, if in fact it had come from the ones that were reduced to skeleton. Not very likely that his last four murders were the only trophies he would have kept from the women, from the women that of whom he did not have premortal sexual intercourse with, and even more odd that one of his trophies had definitely not come from the unfortunate women that had been involved. So basically, he was saying that it's strange that he would insist that they came from the women that they had the evidence for when he could have said that they came from the women that were deceased and, mm-hmm. you know, there was nothing left to find of their hair. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it didn't match, match any of those, and if he was lying and that's what he said, then there's most likely other women that yeah. he's done that to because it would make no sense otherwise. Right. There haven't been any official attempts to trace other crimes back to Christie, and experts are still torn about on opinions and whether he would have or would not have had other victims. Cause some say, well, if he was as like, he came up and he said that he did all this other stuff. So why wouldn't he 
mm-hmm. tell us about other things. But then at the same time, others are like, yeah, but he also Sour denied move. this. Yeah. So it's it was a weird, weird case. And I wish that I would have been able to spend more time, like, getting into the nitty gritty details of it. Yeah. It was, I liked it. I know, I'm like pubic hair, gross. It's fucking, I'm, tufts, the word tufts Tufts. with that. Tufts of pubic hair he collected from his victims. (laughs) Ugh, I don't like, I don't like that at all. Well, and the only one that, like, matched was, that was, like, the right color and whatever for the victims that he said they were from was one that it would have matched his wife. So it's like, I mean... I just don't know. That's just weird. He's just weird. He's messed up. And he kind of looks like a gangly Carl, um, what is it? The one? Yeah, Tensler. So he, uh, yeah. (laughs) I didn't like that at all. Wait, they, do you have funny things? (sighs) Like, did, did people... Send me inappropriate messages? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. No. I got one. It says, oh my god, you are so gorgeous. Any need for a slave boy? And I did not respond. What the fuck? So then he said, I'm very, very serious. Please answer. (laughs) Well, that's gonna make me answer. Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. This is the best picture of him ever. Like, it's a wax rendering of him. Um, This one's funny. I I think I responded and said, haha, good jokes. He said, are you my homework? Because I want to slam you on the desk, promise to do you all night long, get distracted, last two minutes, cry, turn on the TV, and continue to hate myself for a week performance. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you're funny. That was funny. That, that was, was a good, good one. That was good. Um, oh, no, he got weird, so I had to block him. I should have screenshotted the message, though. That's okay. So, yeah, those are the only two I have, but I thought they were both kind of funny. Are you like, my homework? I, I kind of <laughs> want to read it again, because it's funny. Oh, enunciate God. so everybody can hear yeah. the... Are you my homework? Because I want to slam you on the desk, promise to do you all night long, get distracted, last two minutes, cry, turn on the TV, and continue to hate myself for another week performance. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, I thought it wasn't recording for a second. <laughs> oh, I would have cried. I would have too, but it's fine. We were. <laughs> I think that's... Let's see. So another successful week in online dating? Oh, yeah. Still single. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) I'm fine. It's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Oh, I got another one where the guy was deaf, not his profile picture. And I found out because he's like, do you want to text? And I was like, sure. And then he sent me a picture and I was like, you're not who... You look like a serial killer who has bodies in their basement. Like, legitimately, it was, like, night and day. Like, not You even... got that picture still? No, I had to block him because he kept texting me. Girl, if you block it, the conversation should no, still be there unless it. you deleted it. I ought to always, always. You never delete those I things. wish I had it still. And then, like, I just stopped responding because I was like, you're deaf not who you say you are. So that creeps me out. And then he said something. He did mention it. He's like, well, maybe the lighting's just off. I'm like, no, that's deaf not you. Like, you're not. Nope. Nope. And then he sent me another picture and he's like, you know what? Don't even respond. I don't want to bother. I don't want, I don't want to even bother with you anymore. So I was like, all right. Okay, bye. And then he sent me another message. I don't understand why we can't just work this out. I was like, All Because right. you're fucking lying to me about who you are already. We just started talking. I was like, 
Okay, bye. And then I blocked him and deleted the text messages. So I was just, oh my gosh. But well, yeah, that's end of an- all for twenty-eight. All right, it's the end of another episode. Um, you'll have to uh, let us know. Well, depending on, we may have another episode on Friday, depending on if you guys yeah. liked the first one. So right. we're recording this one along with the first one, so we won't know until we know. Friggity friggity Friday. What was it? Fucking. What was it? Fucking A Friday? No. No. That's kind of cool, though. Fucking A Friday. <laughs> um, Something like that. Something like that. I don't it's fucking know. fucking A Friday. It's fine. It's Friday. It's whatever. It's Friday. It's fucking, fr- fucking something Friday. That's your phone. Sweet. Well, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Like all our shit. Follow all our shit. Comment on all our shit. Send us messages. Do the thing. I hope this stuff. isn't your first episode because <laughs> you don't know what the fuck you're looking for. Just ISW. ISW the podcast. <laughs> right? ISW the podcast on any of those platforms. <laughs> you'll find us. <laughs> Maybe go back and listen to another episode so you know what's going on. <laughs> we'll describe things better. We just have done two episodes today, so we're like, all right, fucking wrap this shit up. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Go fuck yourself. (laughs)